They buried Jacob just like they promised. And now that Jacob is dead, the brothers fear amp up again. Just like Esau wasn't going to kill Jacob until his father died, they're now thinking, oh, now he's really going to kill us because he only wasn't killing us out of respect for Jacob. And Joseph has to remind them again. They can't even accept real forgiveness, but notice that they have never asked for forgiveness. He's given it to them, but they've never asked for it. And Joseph assures them once again, and this time with that concise statement, what you intended for evil, verse 20 of chapter 50, God intended for good. And hopefully by this time, they actually believe him. But notice that even to these people who know this God and are part of this covenant, that kind of forgiveness still is hard for them to comprehend. And Joseph makes them swear that when they bury him, they're going to embalm him. And he doesn't ask to be buried in his land, maybe because he would see that as he was afraid Pharaoh would take that offensively since he is kind of an Egyptian. But he makes them promise that they'll carry his bones out in their exodus and bury him in the land 400 years from now. Now, you know how faithful Israel has to be to pass that command down for 400 years? And yet what's so interesting, in chapter 14 of Exodus, it says, God led them out of Israel, and they brought with them the bones of Joseph, just as they had promised him. They were faithful in all those 400 years. And so they go down, they bury him, and then with great fanfare, like thousands of people show up, they take him down in chariots. The fanfare shows how much they really, truly respect Joseph and how much they want to honor him. Verse 24, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to you and lead you up from the land to the land of the swore an oath to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph made his sons of Israel swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to you, then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, his body was placed in a coffin in Egypt. The end. Now here's the complexity of Genesis, the ending. God doesn't seem like he's honored his promises. The book ends on a very negative note. The book begins with God blessing the seven days of creation and calling it good and good and good. And we bring death into the story through our sin. But then the patriarch's story begins with God saying, I will bless you, and I will make you great, and I will give you land, and I will bless you so much that you'll be a blessing to the world. And how does the book end? It ends with them not living in the land, and Joseph in a coffin. The book ends with them outside the land, which is death. And the actual death, and not in positive note. And one would ask the questions, has God not honored his promises? And this brings attention to all the books of the First Testament, the narratives. Because in some ways, one can say, yes, he has honored his promises. I mean, did he not bless this tribe, this family, making Joseph a ruler, the oracles, Judah? Like, they don't even deserve it. And he's blessed them. He saved them. He's multiplied them. They've gone from one guy with a barren wife to now 70 people in their family, which is completion and fullness. 
He's protected them despite themselves. And he has used Jacob to be a blessing to Pharaoh and Joseph, a blessing to his family and Egypt and all the nations. God has honored his promises. But at the same time, he hasn't. Not in the land. And Joseph is dying in a coffin. Buried in a coffin, not the land. And so this begins this tension of where it's so easy for you to say, yes, God has honored his promises. How can you not see God at work here? But at the same time, he's not fulfilling his promises. And every book in the narratives will end that route. Every book ends with some great failure of a leader or somebody dying or Israel outside the land in some kind of a way. And they always end on this negative note. And this tension begins to go where it's so obvious with book after book after book, you can totally see the promises of God and God taking care of and blessing them. But at the same time, they don't have land. And when they finally get the land, they're going into exile. And what you see now is this tension between God and our own sin. The reality is the curse is still in the world. Death and famine. But at the same time, God is sovereignly working against those and overcoming them in a drastic way. But at the same time, man's sin will always threaten those promises. And so every narrative will end on a negative note in this already not yet sense, that God is already doing things for them, but they haven't yet gained And the prophets, when you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, you feel the utter hopelessness of this not-fulfilledness. Because what God is showing you all throughout the First Testament is man's sin will always, always hinder God's desire to bless. But at the same time, God keeps blessing us, redeeming us, and using us in a redemptive way in other people's lives. And so you'll see we hindering the blessings, but God a blessing anyways. And then when you get to the Gospels, true Israel will step on the scene. And true Israel and the person of Jesus Christ and as God will step up and he will fulfill and bring all the blessings. And it is the first narrative in the entire Bible that ends on a positive note of go out and make disciples. And where you see the end of chapter 2, God says, go out, be fruitful, multiply, and rule and subdue the earth and expand the garden in my image. And sin ruins it. The Gospels end with Christ saying, go out, be fruitful, multiply, make disciples, rule and subdue, for I have given you all authority and expand the garden, make disciples. And it doesn't end with some kind of failure or some kind of sin or some kind of rebellion because now the true perfect Messiah is living in us because what it does follow up is wait 40 more days and I will give you the other. And that other leads you into the book of Acts where you see us actually capable of being the Israel we were meant to be Because we now have the Holy Spirit made possible through Jesus Christ. 
And you need to understand that every book intentionally ends on this negative note so that desire for the promises keeps building. But at the same time, it's supposed to teach you theologically man is not going to be able to pull this off. It's making you lose your hope in man and gain a greater desperate dependency on God so that when Jesus Christ comes along, you are theologically convinced for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And only by the grace of God who will help and save me, this wretched man that I am. But without that failure at each narrative, we could convince ourselves, just give me enough time. If I only had a little bit more, if we only tried this form of government, we would be able to do it. But not after this many thousands of years, Israel has every kind of government there is, every economic system you can imagine, every opportunity you can imagine, and they keep failing. And now you become desperate for the Messiah. And that's that sense. It's not the failure of God. It's the failure of man to be the image which whets your appetite and makes you desire for the Messiah that Judah will one day produce. And that's how every book ends. Does it make sense? Questions? So an overview of the book of Genesis. The narrator begins Genesis with the proclamation demonstration of the ultimate sovereignty of Yahweh as creator and king over all things in the universe. Unlike the pagan gods, he is completely transcendent and all-powerful over his creation. As the author of the sky and the land and humanity, he has absolute authority over them and to do what he wills with them. Likewise, Yahweh demonstrates his sovereignty by subduing the chaos forming and filling his creation with order, function, and meaning. Thus, Yahweh can declare all things in his creation good, unlike the pagan gods. Yet the focus of the creation account is not on creation, but on the formation of humanity out of the land. It is to humanity that Yahweh gives the unique gift of being made in his image and the authority to rule and subdue the creation in his name, as in his character and according to his likeness. Though transcendent, Yahweh chooses, out of his love and desire to have a relationship with humanity, to create a garden temple and his creation in order to enter creation and dwell with humanity. It is into the garden temple that he places humanity where they will be his priests in a covenant relationship. He then gives them the command to be fruitful and multiply, to expand the garden, as in to fill the earth with his image and character and to rule and subdue in his name, which would be their act of worship, as in working and tilling the land. These commands and blessings become the basis for everything that is developed throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, the Torah, and the Bible. Yahweh is a relational God who enters in a covenant relationship with humanity in order to bless them. This is the essence of his character. Even when humanity violates their covenant with him, he will pursue them endlessly and their rebellion and in a desire to bless them and redeem them. However, humanity chooses to become autonomous from Yahweh by seeking their own will and determining right and wrong for themselves. The result of the rebellion against the author of the good creation is that sin, corruption, and chaos enter his creation. Now their relationship with Yahweh, each other, and creation become broken. 
Death and emptiness are brought into creation, and humanity is separated from Yahweh and the garden temple and the tree of life. There is no more shalom. In Genesis 3-11, through 11, the narrator develops humanity's dark heart and constant desire and their autonomy to rebel against Yahweh. Thus, they bring more and more chaos and death into his creation. As a result, Yahweh must bring judgment on their actions to maintain his creation and righteous will. Ultimately, he confuses their language and scatters humanity so that they cannot unite in the rebellion. Even after this, Yahweh continues to pursue them and show them grace as he restores and blesses them. It is from this scattered people that Yahweh chooses Abraham to make him into a great nation so that he can bless them and the whole world through him. Yahweh reveals himself to Abraham and teaches him what it means to be the image of Yahweh. Yahweh makes covenant with Abraham that is not based on the obedience of humanity, like in the garden, but on his own character and his own commitment to his people. Through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's twelve sons, who would become the nation of Israel, Yahweh will restore the garden temple that humanity once had with Yahweh as he blesses them with fruitfulness and their descendants and their grain and flocks. This family, however, is also saturated in the sin of the fall and must be redeemed from their own autonomy as well. Even so, Yahweh will redeem them and use them to bless and redeem others, despite their own sin. In Genesis, this finds its culmination in Joseph's rise to power, which Yahweh uses to save Jacob's family and the surrounding nations and the formation of the tribes of Israel. John Salahammer says, Behind all the events and human plans recounted in the story of Joseph lies the unchanging plan of God. It is the same plan introduced from the very beginning of the book where God looks out at what he has just created for man and sees that it is good. Through his dealings with the patriarchs and Joseph, God had continued to bring about the good plan. He had remained faithful to his purposes, and it is the point of this narrator to show that this people can continue to trust him and to believe that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 At the end of Genesis, Yahweh has proven himself faithful to his chosen family. Yet at the same time, the promises of nationhood and land are still unfulfilled. Israel is in Egypt, not Canaan, and they are under the rule of the Egyptians rather than being rulers themselves. Likewise, sin is rooted deep in this family. And even though Yahweh has worked in their lives, changing hearts and bringing restoration, one wonders if this is enough to really restore humanity to the garden temple. This is the tension between the sovereignty and the faithfulness of Yahweh and the sinfulness and rebellion of humanity. The conclusion of Genesis with Jacob's failing Egypt is the link to the beginning of Exodus, wherein their circumstances have grown worse, for now they are enslaved to the Egyptians and under a pharaoh who does not know Joseph or what he had done for Egypt. Yet the author is quick to point out that they have also become a great multitude, just as Yahweh had promised them. This sets the stage for Yahweh to perform his greatest act of deliverance to his chosen people and the history of the First Testament. 
This act of salvation and addition to the Abrahamic covenant becomes the foundation to everything else that Yahweh will do for his chosen people, Israel, so that they can be a blessing to the entire world. Yahweh, we thank you so much for who you are. We praise you for your beautifully woven book, your story that is true, and your story that is ancient and old and has been woven throughout all of history, and the story that you continue in our own lives, wanting to make us a part of this story. And that we, too, are part of these 12 tribes in the sense that when we accept Christ as our Father and our King, our tribe of Judah, our line of Judah, then we become adopted into the tribe of Judah. And we thank you for giving us the right, who were once not a people, to become a people of this great Abrahamic covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.